0: As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Amen to that. for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors in the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, And the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity.
1: Thank you, Amy. Good morning, and uh, happy Palm Sunday to you. Uh, This is the day that we remember that begins Holy Week, which is the week we're in now, the week where Jesus rode into Jerusalem and people hailed him as king. And then on Thursday, they cried, crucify him. And we realize that on Good Friday, which is this Friday, we remember this moment where Jesus dies on a cross for sinners. But we remember that he, no one takes his life. He lays it down. He laid his life down in death for us. We remember that this week. But then on Easter Sunday, he took it up again. And He's alive today, and He reigns as our King, King of the universe, King over all the world. And uh, this week is an incredible week where we get to remember that, we get to celebrate that. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to some of the things we'll be able to do reflectively this week, uh, leading up to next Sunday, Easter Sunday. Uh, but for now, uh, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 11, and all the way down through chapter 12, verse 8. Um, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I I love movies. I love movies, and at risk of sounding like a grumpy old person, uh, I'll say it, uh, they don't make movies like they used to, okay? They don't make movies like they used to, and uh, what I mean is they don't make movies like Braveheart, okay? They don't make movies like Braveheart anymore. Yes, I'm getting, yeah, this is great. Um, but in that famous climactic scene at the end of Braveheart, William Wallace is preparing to face his executioners. And uh, Princess Isabella of France offers him this uh, anesthetic that would numb the pain and of his imminent torture and death that awaits him. And he refuses to drink it because he's William Wallace, you know, why would you? And she says to him, but you're going to die. It'll be awful. And he famously replies, every man dies, but not every man really lives. It's one of those great movie lines that stands the test of time, and if you think about it, you would almost imagine that William Wallace was reading Ecclesiastes, right? We, we only have two more weeks in this book, and as we've walked through these pages, we've seen that one of the major themes of Ecclesiastes is the theme of death, that it touches us all, it, it touches every one of us, and it's the great equalizer in our lives, And so Ecclesiastes has been saying, yes, every man dies. And we can almost echo those words of Princess Isabella, and it'll be awful. It'll be awful. But it's also been teaching us how to live a meaningful life in the face of death. And it doesn't lie to us. It doesn't tell us to chase after other things in this world that you can find lasting gain in. It tells you, it promises you that it's going to leave you unsatisfied. But it's also not a fatalistic book and says to you, you know, just do nothing with your life. It's all meaningless. It's not what it says either. Ecclesiastes has been teaching us that life itself is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. And today's passage really hits home with William Wallace's line. Not not every man really lives. Not every man really lives. See, our passage is teaching us how to live, and it's telling us that life is, yes, a gift, and so live in the moment. If you want to live a meaningful life, live in the moment. So here's the three things uh, that's instructing us for how to live our lives, a meaningful life. It tells us in verses one through six that we should invest in the moment, even with the understanding that we don't know what's coming. that we should invest in the moment. In verses seven through 10, it tells us to rejoice in the moment. In verses one through eight, it tells us to remember in the moment. right To invest and rejoice and remember, is the theme of living in the moment here in these last few pages of our book. So let's look at investing in the moment. We are told in these first six verses here, these poetic lines, we are told four different times that we don't know things. Right? Don't you love it when someone tells you you don't know something? They're like, you don't know that. That always feels really good, doesn't it? You're like, yeah, you're right. You know? No, I mean, really, it tells you you don't know things four different times in these verses. And so we're confronted with this reality of, how do I live my life? How do I respond to things that I don't know, that I can't control, that I can't understand? When you face things that you can't control and that you don't understand, what does that do to your life? Well, if you're being honest, you would probably say something like, it frustrates you, it paralyzes you. Well, our passage is telling us to face these unknowns with a very counterintuitive approach. And it's not a sleight of hand, it's actually telling you to live In in real reality, here, the first thing it tells us that you don't know is that you don't know the future. Look in verses one through four. It tells us that we don't know the future. Uh, These these poetic lines here, uh, they seem a bit confusing. You have cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. And most of us are like, I don't want soggy bread. I mean, I don't want to go find bread after many days. Like, who wants that, right? It's kind of gross. You know, but we figure out what these verses are telling to us when you look at those verbs that begin verse uh, one and verse two. Because so what does it say? Cast your bread, literally send it out. Then verse two says what? Give a portion, right? So I have bread, and I am told to send it out. I'm told to give it to seven, and then to eight. And these numbers are significant because uh, in the Bible, the number seven is a number of perfection, and so it's saying give completely. Give completely. And then in giving to eight, it's saying, and then give a little bit more. Right? So today, it'd be like saying to you, give until it hurts. Give what you have until it hurts. Why? Well, your, your passage tells you, look at the end of verse two. Why? Because for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Right? Isn't this interesting? Because you don't know what's coming. Because you don't know what kind of disaster may approach your life. Give generously. Right? That's the reasoning. And verses 3-4 through four poetically describe these realities of, of rain and wind and trees falling and water dumping. In verse 4, we get this image of a farmer, right? And because of what he sees, he makes these predictions about what he thinks is coming. And instead of sowing his seed because of what he thinks is coming, he, he doesn't do it. And what happens? Because he doesn't sow, he does not reap. Do you see that? He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So right here we found something that we will not hear anywhere else in this world. I doubt you heard it this week. Anywhere in this world. And it's clothed here in all of its beauty as wisdom. This is saying Ecclesiastes type wisdom says, take the best of what you have and give it all away. Why? Why? Because you do not know what disaster may come upon the earth. So in light of the fact that you're uncertain about what's ahead, in light of the fact that you lack control, right, we should be generous. But worldly wisdom would tell you to do what in light of this? Build bunkers. Build bigger barns. But Christ-like, Ecclesiastes-like wisdom throws open the doors and windows of your house and it says, what do I have that I can give? I don't know what's coming next. So here's the question then for us, just in this first four verses. Guys, what what is it? What unknowns right now in your life? What unknowns do you face that you are letting dictate your present actions? What kind of unknowns do you face that you're letting dictate how you're living right now? What unknowns are preventing you from living generously? See, we're told here not to be paralyzed with the unknown, but to invest, invest. But secondly, we're told in verse five that uh, something very different It says, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So here's that second thing that we don't know. You don't know the work of God who makes everything. Right? In other words, we don't know how to do what only God can do. And I know we all go, yeah, of course. But but this, this is really challenging for us. I mean, the image here is that of wind or spirit, which is the same word in, in Hebrew. And it's saying, can we see the path the wind takes? You feel it, but you don't go, it came around that corner and then it headed that way. You, you have no idea, right? We we, we we can look at a womb, right? And we can get a 3D ultrasound image of a baby in the womb. But do we really know how life is made? Not just in a scientific way, but in the way that its spirit and soul are created in the womb. I mean, how does life actually begin? We know it begins in the womb, but how? Right? I don't know how to do what only God can do. That's what it's saying. Guys, see, we all face up to things that we cannot know in life that only God can know. We, we have questions about life, don't we? We have questions about the Bible, don't we? And those questions can often discourage us. Those questions can often paralyze us to the point where we go, I have to figure this out before I can move forward. But here's the thing, just because we can think of a question and just because we can't think of the answer doesn't mean there's not a good answer. It just means that God hasn't revealed to you that answer because we don't need to know it. The same idea is most beautifully and powerfully expressed in the book of Job when God speaks to Job out of the midst of a storm, in the midst of Job's terrible suffering. Job has all these questions for God. And we would say rightfully so. And God responds to Job's questions not with giving him all the answers to his questions, but by asking Job more questions. It's about two chapters long. I'm not going to read for you the whole thing. I just pulled a few lines out of it. It should be on the screen for you. But God says to Job, "'Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? "'Tell me if you have understanding. "'Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. "'Or who stretched the line upon it? "'Have you commanded the morning since your days began "'and caused the dawn to know its place? "'Where is the way to the dwelling of light, "'and where is the place of darkness "'that you may take it to its territory "'and you may discern the paths to its home? "'You know, for you were born then, "'and the number of your days is great.' Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? And the effect of all these questions is that we realize every time that Job has to answer with, I don't know, I have no idea. But with every question, God could say, I do. Oh, I know. So God is asking Job, if you can't know what I know, then how can you level charges against me based on what you know? How can you do that? So guys, do you see a a Christian, a a true Christian, takes comfort in living their life and saying, I don't know, but God does. I do not know. It's a great question. God knows. So to think that I should be able to know all there is to know about everything I have questions about is the kind of control over the world that Ecclesiastes has been teaching us to try to surrender to. Don't, Don't let your unanswered questions paralyze you from living in the moment. And then the last unknown that we are faced with here in verse 6 is what? In the morning, sow your seed. At evening, withdraw, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. It's just saying we do not know how to guarantee success. And we do not know how to avoid failure. So what are you going to do about it? Right? You do not know which will prosper, this or that. That's what it says in verse 6. So we all get this, right? Being successful in what we do, is probably one of our main goals in life, right? I mean, if you're aiming for failure in your life, you're doing it wrong, right? I mean, nobody is like aiming for failure. We all want to be successful. We all want to do something well and something that matters and something that makes a difference, right? Yet, ultimately, we don't know whether what we will do will fail or succeed. So the wisdom from the teacher in verse 6 is saying aim for success... Aim for it, right? He says, sow your seed in the morning. Do the work. And then he says at night, don't just watch Netflix every night, right? Keep your hand to the plow kind of idea, right? Don't withhold your hand from your work. Aim for success. See, this kind of challenges our views, though. Some people might think that if I just keep doing the right thing, then success is guaranteed. I know success is guaranteed. This challenges that view. You don't know that. But then others tend to see only risks and only the failure that can come about, and so they don't do anything. And so the teacher is saying, you don't know, so aim for success. Do good work. Do it well. But at the end of the day, it's not ultimate. Don't let it crush you. See, the teacher is saying in these six verses that that the way forward in our seasons of life when, when we face the unknowns is not found in dwelling on what we don't know, but it's actually in investing our lives in the moments that we actually have. In other words, don't wait until tomorrow, live today. You can't live tomorrow today, live today today, right? Don't be paralyzed by the questions that are left unanswered, right? Do what is good to do today. That's what it's telling you to do. My four year old, um, she's awesome and interesting and she, um, she has this phrase that she uses to try to, she thinks she's tricking us all the time. But she always, you know, when I say something to her, like, hey, you should wear this shirt or this is a really pretty dress, you know, she'll say, hmm, I'll wear that tomorrow. I'll wear that tomorrow. Like, hey, do you want to read a book or do you want to do this thing? Anything that I want her to actually do, she responds by saying, hmm, we'll do that tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow, right? And it's, uh, it's impressive, actually, because I'm not going to challenge that anymore. But basically, do you see what she's doing? She's like, I'm not saying no but I'm not saying yes, right? I'm going to let you down lightly and nice and easy, Dad, uh, but I'm not doing that. We can either fight about it or we can just do it tomorrow. And I'll say, all right, tomorrow it is, okay? But man, I think about those responses. I'm like, I am a lot like Isla, and I'm sure you are too, aren't you? Right, well, we're not saying no in the moments, but we're not really saying yes either. Right, we face all these unknown things, so we don't say no, we just don't say yes. We see our life uh, as a bunch of disruptions and we go, i got to get through this thing, i got to get this figured out, and then I'll invest. right? Then I'll live in the moment. C.S. Lewis famously said, the truth is that what one regards as interruptions are precisely one's life. If I'm always waiting for the interruptions to go away, to invest in the moment, that's the makeup of my life. Right? Don't be paralyzed, you guys. Invest. Secondly, rejoice in the moment. Rejoice in the moment. This passage reminds us, as Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes has several times so far, that life is a gift. I mean, look at me in verse, look with me in verse 7. What does it say? Light is sweet. Yes, it is, as Amy pointed out. Right? And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. What a good Oregonian verse. Right? To see the sun in Ecclesiastes. Guys, that's the language of being alive, what it is. He's saying life is sweet and pleasant. It is a gift from God. That's what he's saying. So yesterday was a gift from God. Today is a gift from God. Tomorrow, if you have it, is a gift from God. In fact, it's it's something God calls us then to rejoice in. You're called to enjoy it, to make the most of it. We've seen the call, which has been a major theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've seen this call to enjoy, to rejoice, um, to find joy six times in this book. And here's the final time. It's the seventh time. It's right here. The beginning of verse 8 says what? So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in every single one of them. And again, verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart. It's talking about your desire. Right? In the sight of your eyes. Right? Life is a gift. It's to be enjoyed. It's not to be taken for granted. And that's in part because it's a gift that doesn't last. Right? At least life under this sun. But look with me again in verse 8. Just hear the urgency of his rejoice command. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness Will be many. All that comes is vanity. In contrast to the sweetness of light, he's referring then to the bitterness of death. That's what he's saying there. He says, "All that comes is vanity." Again, this isn't all that comes is meaningless. He's just saying it's it's fleeting. It's it's here today. It's gone tomorrow. It's the breath, right? You could see on the cold morning, right? So again, in verse ten, he says, "Then what? Remove vexation. Remove trouble. Is what that means from your heart. Put away pain. A better word to be evil." from your body. Why? For youth in the dawn of life or vanity. See that in verse 10, right? So youthful vitality is fleeting, so enjoy it while you can. Right, this passage, you guys, uh, really is most... The, the first audience or the first plane of the audience really is speaking to the younger generation. So so if you're a, if you're a kid, I mean, this is like your verse in Ecclesiastes right here. Right, if you're a teenager, if you're a child, this is speaking to you. I want you to imagine... The preacher, the teacher, we imagine it would be King Solomon. He's an old man now. He's at the end of his life. And he's passing on this wisdom to the younger generation. He's saying to you, enjoy your days. I imagine if you walked up to anybody who's elderly in our church, they would say to you, if you're a teenager, enjoy those days. Enjoy your youth. I mean, when people are having babies and they're not seasoned, the people who've had kids that have been grown and raised, they always come up to those other people and say, enjoy those young years. We're always telling each other to do this. That's what he's saying. But realize that the command to enjoy, to to follow your heart, so to speak, to, uh, what does it say? It says, walk in the ways of your heart, the desire language, in the sight of your eyes, language. Notice what it's tethered to. What does it say? But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. That's interesting. This isn't saying that God wants you to be miserable. He's not saying go out and have fun, but you're going to pay. That's not what these verses are saying. right? It's saying that God is your creator. God is your judge. Meaning, He births your life. He births all of life. And He's the one standing at the end of all things that He will evaluate it all. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who is over it all. And He says, enjoy it. Enjoy it. But realize how that's tethered to me as your creator. It's, it's telling you here that God has designed life So just because I have a desire to do something doesn't mean it's going to lead to my joy. It can wrongly uh, image itself as that, but it's not going to lead to my joy. It's not going to lead to my freedom or my flourishing. I mean, this kind of verse doesn't sound fun at all. It kind of sounds like God's being this cosmic killjoy, doesn't it? Because you live in a world, we we both do, where people tell us that that no one should tell you what you you should want to do. But if anybody tells you that, you just cast them off, especially God. You're told you're the captain of your own ship. If You've ever boated before, I don't know, right? So this might seem like God's being a killjoy, right? Go do what you want, but I'm, you're going to pay for it. That's not at all, guys. I, I missed this personally in my teenage years. I mean, I was raised hearing about Christ. And one of the verses I gravitated towards was Jesus saying, I have come that you may have joy and have it abundantly. I was like, all right, I'm in. And then I got to my teenage years and everyone seemed to be having a lot more joy than I was. So so I sort of deconstructed in my faith, you could say. I became this agnostic, self-proclaimed agnostic person. Because I thought this Christianity was just a religion built for God or my parents to control my behavior. It was just... A religion of restraint. That's how I saw it. So I went out and I did everything that I saw in my heart and with my eyes to do. And honestly, guys, it left me miserable, angry, cold-hearted, bitter. It pulled me away from my family and people that I loved. And then I saw how shallow my friendships even were. And at one level, you could say I was rejoicing in my youth but I missed the end of verse 9. This isn't just saying that you'll be judged for your sin. It is, saying, it is saying that. But behind the judgment is the backdrop that God has designed our lives. And He knows what's best for us. And if I follow Him, it'll lead to my joy and He commands it. So joy tethered to judgment means that true joy is found in living according to God's design. And if you're a youth, don't miss this. This is a path of wisdom. It pays off. God isn't trying to kill your joy, He's trying to lead you into it. And trying to find joy apart from God's design is only going to enslave you, it's only going to hurt other people, and it's only going to lead you away from God because that's exactly what temptation does. But just in case you subjectively are like, hey, I'm not young anymore, this doesn't apply to me, this really is talking about just anybody who has breath in their lungs. So if you've taken any breath since we've been in here, this verse is still for you today. So, So let me just ask you as you age, as the cares of your heart grow. I mean, how how do you enjoy today when today isn't ideal? How do you rejoice in the moment when you're in the midst of suffering? Well, it's all about perspective. This verse isn't giving you these mental gymnastics. It's not saying act like suffering and pain aren't a part of our lives. Guys, it's good to cry about things that we should cry about. It's good to grieve Evil in this world. Right? But we are also called to rejoice, not because we're trying to escape reality, but because it's calling us into reality. So you see, we can rejoice in life as long as we focus on what we have versus what we don't have. And if you think about it, that's always the deciding factor, isn't it? You have so much. If life is a gift, you have so much. So what am I giving my attention to? put it to you this way, I'll never forget, I don't know why this stood out to me, but um, when I was in college in Southern California and downtown Riverside, we were at this area where there's this Mission Inn hotel, it's a really old place, cool place to hang out. I was with some friends and we went and we got sandwiches, we were eating sandwiches. My friend um, got a really large one and only ate half of it, right? It was one of those that was like cut in half, nicely wrapped, wasn't even touched, right? This perfectly untouched sandwich, you know, he just was like, I'm full, you know, I have this leftover sandwich. So we're walking around and we see this homeless man, right? This man who's there and he, he wants food. And uh, my friend, not knowing what disaster may happen on earth, goes up to him and says, here, I want you to have my sandwich. And the guy said, and I don't know why, I've never forgotten it. He goes, oh man, thanks, but I had my heart set on barbecue. said, I have my heart set on barbecue. And we were just kind of in awe. We are like, oh, okay, well, interesting. You know, and we just kind of moved on right? But here's a person who was saying he was hungry, right? And I don't know the reasons, the motivations, but that's always stood out to me. Here was something offered to him that was good, tasty, right? It was great. It was free. It was a gift. You know, I got my heart set on this thing. I'm like, isn't that true for us in life? I'm robbed of my joy because I have my heart set on something else that I don't have versus focused on what I do have. It's like when you offer child ice cream, You ever had a kid? I said this when I was a kid. You know, maybe I'm offered vanilla ice cream and I say, Is there any chocolate? You know? And my parents are like, No, there's not any chocolate. There's vanilla. You know, what's wrong with you? You know? But I'm being robbed of my joy. Why? Because I'm focused on what I don't have versus what I have. How do you live in the moment? How do you rejoice in the days? You see your life as a gift from God. So rejoice in all your days, no matter how many you have, every single one of them. Don't wait. Rejoice now. Because we've been given this communion with God, we have this God that we're tethered to. Lastly, we're told to remember. We're told to invest. We're told to rejoice. We're told to remember. Here in in verse 1, what does it say? Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. This is saying youth doesn't last. And what follows from this verse is honestly, it's a really playful description of old age, leading up to death. It's all these vivid images, and and uh, the author is using the metaphor of a house to describe this old age, right? It's kind of comedic, depending on who you are, I guess. But um, but basically, this is saying uh, we all know where the train is headed. We just don't know how much track we have in front of us. And this is what life looks like when you get to the end. As life draws to a close, the sweetness of light is darkened. Let me try the best I can to kind of walk through some of these images so that you see how this is talking about a human life. Verse 2 says, The sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. This is imaging a storm rolling in over a house. The sun and moon are darkened, meaning the end is coming. Verse 3, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, this is imaging the arms of someone that used to do the housework, but they're now shaking due to old age. Right? It says, and the strong men are bent, most likely the legs, pictured as those who used to bear heavy loads. They're now bent under the weight of all these years of labor. Verse 3 continues, and the grinders cease because they are few. This could be a reference to teeth. They're fewer and fewer, no longer able to grind up the food. And then he ends in verse 3, and those who look through the windows are dimmed. This is probably the eyes and loss of sight. Imagine a person sitting in their living room who used to watch the people pass by. They can't see anything anymore, though. Verse 4, And the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low. The, the ears can't hear the sound outside, right? That's the image, right? They're shut. Verse 4 continues, And one rises up at the sound of a bird. Can you imagine a sleepless night? I mean, some of you have that now, right? Some, you just, you're up at every little sound in the house. Okay? You're roused by the smallest sounds. The same idea. And all the daughters of song are brought low. Most likely someone a weakened voice. Imagine someone who used to sing. Now they can't. Verse 5, they're also afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. Perhaps this could be the fear of falling in your old age or general phobias that can develop at the end of your life. The almond tree blossoms, it says. This is a, a beautiful head of white hair. Right? You just got an almond tree on there, right? The grasshopper drags itself along. This is being limp when the body no longer works the way it should. And desire fails. Literally, the caperberry doesn't work. This was an ancient aphrodisiac. So this would be like saying Cialis doesn't help. Just being honest with you. That's what it means. Why? What does it say? Because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. This is not an ambiguous picture now, is it? Right? There's a funeral procession. Someone's gone home. And unlike the temporary home that's just fallen apart at death, we go to an eternal home, it's saying. But then look at the end of the imagery in verse 6. Before the silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken, And these days, imagine a golden lamp hanging from a cord and snapping and the chandelier comes crashing down. The light goes out, right? Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. Somehow something just slips out of your hands and it's over, it's broken. And in the end of verse 7, with an echo of Genesis 3, you get the most specific description of death in the whole book. And the dust returns to the earth as it was our bodies to the grave. And the Spirit returns to God who gave it. It goes to the hands of God, your judge. Your creator and judge. Do you guys notice what Ecclesiastes just did for us? The beginning of the book in chapter 2, verses 1-11, through 11, we see who we imagine to be King Solomon building a palace. Getting it all. And at the end of the book, it's just describing the decay of the house. It's all broken. It's a picture of decaying life. The point of all this is that God wants you to to make the most of life before this happens. If you don't believe me, look in verse 1 again. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. When? Before the evil days come. That word before comes up three more times in verse 2 and in verse 6. It says, remember your Creator before that day and before this day and before that day right? When should that be happening? Well, if life is a gift, and we saw this a couple weeks ago, I don't even know when I will die. That means today. It doesn't mean, we will try to remember him down the road. This is not a God you put on the back burner. We remember our creator today, today. Because this kind of remembering isn't saying that you walk around once a day with a checkbox saying, all right, God is real, God made me, moving on. Right? That's not what this kind of remembering is. This is the kind of remembering where you live your days giving your attention to God. The One who made you and knows you and designed this world. Right, Live with Him in mind because all of your life is leading you to a day when He will be all that you see. Face to face. This is a deeper kind of remembering than what you and I might might be prone to believe it is we all know the difference i mean you might have had somebody over the years bring up a name from somebody you knew in high school but you haven't thought about this person in years you know you they might say to you uh do you remember do you remember tabitha roberts or something and you'll be like oh yeah i remember tabitha roberts yeah i remember her i haven't thought about her in years right that's not the kind of remembering that verse one's talking about so like oh yeah i remember my creator yeah i remember him you know, this would be like going up to Tabitha. I don't know if this person's real, but Tabitha, and let's just say she married her high school sweetheart. They grew up together, right? And you're, you might go up to this person and say, do you remember Tabitha Roberts from high school? He would say to you, oh yeah, I definitely remember Tabitha. But let's just say these people have been in lifelong love with each other. He's going to respond to you very differently, right? I remember her. I can't imagine life without her, My whole life has been reoriented around this person. She's not a distant memory. I lived every day of my life with the reality of Tabitha on my mind. I'm faithful to her. My remembering of her orients my life, my decisions, my loves, my time, my money spent, my energy, my everything. That's a different kind of remembering of Tabitha, right? That's what it's talking about here. Remember your Creator now. This is what verse one's talking about, and it's a transformative kind of remembering, you guys. I mean, how in the world can you face the unknown? How in the world can you live in the moment well? And not like you're just trying to escape it. How can you live well into it with all of its hard realities? Guys, it's, it's only by knowing that when the sweet light dims on your life, when the day of darkness comes, that you, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, that you are simply moving addresses. You are moving to your eternal home. That's what it says in verse 5. If you live there, you can live meaningfully here. It's knowing that that's happening. And you will live this way while you are remembering that it's your Creator. It's your Creator that became the created. John says He was the Word made flesh who lived among us. And John says we have seen His glory. He he was the one who knew in verse 2 that the disaster would come upon Him not because he was passive, not because he just assumed it would happen, because he was actively moving towards the day when he would choose to have the light, the sweet light of day dim, and he would choose to have the darkness of death enshroud him. And he laid his life down. And he did it by carrying your cross up Calvary. Do you see your creator and judge? He's also your savior. He generously gave in the face of certain death and disaster, generously gave His life so that the sweet light of eternal joy would dawn upon your heart today. As now we know that it's not just this day that's a gift, but every day. Every day in all of eternity, I will wake up and I'll go, this is a gift. The gift of God is eternal life. Now we live in, a, in light of living under that sun, right? We aim for what God deems as successful. We aim for the things that God says we should invest in. We rejoice in the things that God says take joy in. And oh, we remember. We remember. We reorient our life around Him. I, I know that life has been hard and challenging uh, for a year, and for many people, for years. But we've been confronted with an unknown future and if we aren't careful, we can naively think that that's a new reality. We, we live in a time where we're like, yeah, I don't know what next year looks like. But guys, we've never known. We've never known. And because of the season that we've been walking in, we felt like we've had to put everything on hold. We've had to wait. I'll get to that. I'll get back to my life someday. Right? But that's only true if, if what I view as my life, is circumstantial. If what I view as my life can be stripped away. But if what if I view my life in such a way that I can invest in things that can never be taken away from me, then I can always live. Nothing can get in the way of that. We were never told by God to be put on hold. If anything, receive the words in our passage this morning. And let God use them to stir up your heart to begin living today. Because you can't live tomorrow today. And you don't know if you have tomorrow, so we live today. It's not on hold. It might not look the way that I want it to. I might have questions. I might not understand it. But I have the gift of life. I got breath in my lungs, and I have a Savior who died for me. And so I need to remember, guys, that I am right where God wants me to be. I am. I'm not out of place unless I'm living in sin. I'm not out of place. I don't need to be further down the road than I am. You're not behind in life. I don't need to be more advanced in my career, more advanced in relationships. I don't need to be in a different state. I don't need to be... I'm here. I'm right here. I learned this past week about a man named William Borden. I think he lived out this passage really well. Uh, He went to Yale University, this is a really long time ago, but he went to Yale University and um, he was an heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, which, I don't know if you've ever heard of that, this estate had a lot of money, okay, so when he was a high school graduate, he was already a millionaire, okay, anybody been a millionaire at high school graduation? Don't raise your hand, I guess, if you have, but, right, But as a gift for his graduation, just like all of our gifts were, right? He was sent on a trip around the world, okay? And as he traveled, he went through Asia, the Middle East, Europe. And as he traveled, he had this heart birthed within him, a heart for the lost. He said, I'm going to give my life. He wrote this to his, house, to his parents at home. I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. After making that decision, he wrote down these words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. He wrote no reserves, meaning all this money, I don't want to have any of it left. I want to invest it. From there, he went to Yale, and during his first semester, he began these Bible studies. Read the Bible pray. Read the Bible and pray with all these people. And by the end of that first year, he had 150 freshmen that were meeting weekly for these Bible studies. By his senior year, there were 1,000 students meeting in these Bible studies to pray, There were only 1,300 enrolled. After graduation, he was offered numerous high-paying jobs and he declined all of them. And when he was challenged with what he wanted to do with his life, he wrote down the back of his Bible under no reserves, he wrote no retreats. Right? No retreats. He went to seminary, was ordained in the ministry, set sail for China, but he stopped in Egypt to study Arabic. And it was there that he contracted meningitis. He only lived for another month. He was dead at the age of 26. But right before he died, he knew it would be the end. He knew the light was dimming on his life. And he wrote underneath, no reserves and no retreats. He wrote no regrets. If you're being honest, do you think this person's life was wasted? Do you think it was wasted? Millionaire at the age of 18, offered any job you wanted, seemingly, but you're dead at 26 because you set about to spread the gospel to the Muslim people in China. Man, by the world's standards, yeah, he missed it. But by King Jesus' standards, it was one of the greatest lives I've ever lived. Life was a gift and he got it. He invested, he rejoiced, oh, and he remembered. Guys, every man dies. Every man dies, but not every man truly lives. And we worship a creator this morning that we're singing about who died for us that we could truly start living for him today. So invest today. Rejoice today. Don't focus on what you don't have. And remember your creator today. Live in the moment. Let's all rise to our feet. So we pray, and then we go into a time of singing and response. Father God, we come before you humbly, and I just want to express, Lord, my gratitude for your word. I thank you, Lord, for how it is alive and active. It is sharper than a sword. Lord, you you do surgery in our lives, and I pray you would do that loving surgery today in my own heart and life of our church, that we would... Be people who are filled with your joy. God, who live in light view you every single moment of the day and who invest all we have content with what we don't know. God, we pray your will will be done in our lives, in our church, in East County, and all over this world. Lord, would you send us out God, to be your hands and feet. You say, how will they hear if no one is sent? How beautiful are the few of those who bring good news. We know that faith comes through our hearing and hearing the word of Christ. We pray that we would receive this word this morning and then we would go live it and we'd go and share it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.